You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture today is from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful to be gathered here today. So thankful for your word, Lord, and how it is a guide for us, God. It defines who we are and how we live. And I pray, God, that as we look at you, look what you've commanded us to do, God, that we would be convicted, cut to the heart, Lord. I pray that we would not cling to comfort of this world, Lord, or this nation, but rather that we would go as you've commanded us to go. And we pray this on Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome, guys. Well, as you can see, John is not up on the screen. We finished the book of John after a while, and so now we are transitioning to a new... Am I allowed to say what we're transitioning to? Oh, never mind. It's a surprise. So we have a little gap. Uh, just this week, we're going to walk through the Great Commission. And the reason why we're going through the Great Commission, um, why we decided to preach on this for this week, is we are entering into a stage of our church where we realize, the pastors have realized, we want to be a much more missional church than we've been. That we've, we've uh, in a good way, in some ways, we've focused a lot on, on how we can be a really healthy church, but we've also seen that almost to the detriment of being ascending a church, ascending church, a church that goes out from this place and makes disciples. And so as we were considering what to preach on going into the, the new book, the mystery book that we're preaching on next week, we thought this was a great text to sit on, to pray through, to be convicted of, and to hopefully encourage, exhort us as a church and as a people of God to go out. So that's my, ho- my hope. That's my hope from the sermon today, that we will, each one of us, individually and as a church, be convicted to go. So you're going to hear me say the word go a lot. And the goal is that we will go, that we will go to the nations, and also that I hopefully can convince you that we would go right here in Annapolis, at the Naval Academy, at our jobs, with our family, that we will go and seek to make disciples where God has each one of us right now. My other hope is that you won't view this commission as something for missionaries, right? That this is something for each one of us to go and do. And so that's my hope that as we walk through this, that we will see that. And there's three points that we're going to look at. First is the context to go. So we're going to do a little bit bit of uh, biblical theology. We're going to look at what brings us to this point in Matthew 28, where the risen Christ gives this commission. And then we're going to look at the motivation to go. What actually motivates us and what is holding us back? What fears do we have that is holding us back from actually being a people that go? And we're going to look at how do we practically do it? How do we do it in our context here in Annapolis? So with that said, let's look back. We're going to look at the 10,000-foot view of God's redemptive story here for a moment. To understand the full context of the Great Commission, what Christ has said here in Matthew 28, we have to actually look all the way back at the creation narrative. 
And I like to say there was a first commission before the Great Commission. And this was the creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 1.28. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's first commission to his people was this, that his children will spread his image across the globe, that his, that his children will reveal God to the rest of creation. But as we know, that this is not exactly what happens, at least not perfectly. What ends up happening, of course, is that Adam and Eve sin, and when they seek to expand the garden, now they are banned from it. So the Garden of Eden does not expand. God's uh, manifestation of himself has not happened through the multiplication of um, Adam and Eve's offspring, at least not perfectly. Instead, what happens? We see that in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so what do we see here? So we have the mandate from God, the creation mandate, where it says, go be fruitful and multiply for the purpose of expanding God's kingdom. And instead, now what's sown within that in mankind is sin, our sinful nature. Adam and Eve choosing to make themselves Lord of themselves. To make themselves God is now sown into the nature of mankind and therefore, that is sown into as they sought to be fruitful and multiply. And so God's perfect expansion of the garden, God's perfect expansion and his, uh, his missional idea of how to expand the earth does not happen perfectly. And there's a couple of interesting things here. You're going to see a consistent theme today as we walk through it with this idea of dominion and authority. And so when we look at Adam and Eve, God gives them this mandate and he says to have dominion over what? All of the things on the earth, essentially. And Eve turns right around, and Adam turns right around, and do not exercise dominion over the snake in the garden, over the devil, over one of those creeping things on the earth. And so we see right away this idea of a lack of understanding, a lack of belief in the authority that comes from God. And we're going to come back to that in a, a little bit later. So this is the problem. God had his original creation mandate to spread his glory across the globe, and now it's been subverted by sin. And so that's the problem that we land in. So what does God do? We have this idea, we're not going to get into all of this, we have this idea of covenant representatives, people that will represent and essentially try to do what Adam was supposed to do in working the garden throughout the rest of redemptive history, this idea of God's plan to redeem, to reconcile, to restore back what it was supposed to be. And so you have a lot of the patriarchs there, but I want to focus in on Israel. Eventually, the nation of Israel becomes what God intended Adam to be. Now, I'm going to read this real quick. This is Exodus 19. Verses three, there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to the God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So why is this? 
piece of passage within Exodus significant to the Great Commission. Well, do you see what God is doing here? This is part of the redemptive plan. Originally, what Adam was supposed to do, now it's falling on Israel. Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. As they follow God, the rest of the world is supposed to look at Israel and say, what's different about them? What's different? There's a, there's a theologian, he says it like this. His name is John Durham. He said, God charges Israel to be a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. Israel is to incarnate in the midst of history what God intended in creation at the beginning of history and what he will accomplish in his redemptive work at the end of history. If Israel is faithful, their life will be attractive and draw the nations into covenant with the Lord. In the later language of Isaiah, Israel is called to be a light to the nations. So you have this idea that as Israel follows God, as Israel pursues God, listens to his commandments, is in covenant with him, that they are literally going to be this light. And that the other nations amongst the world, the people that are not in covenant with God, will go to Israel and they will say, what, what do you have? And that through Israel perfectly following the Lord, the rest of the world will come to be in, in covenant with him. The rest of the world will come under God's guidance, God's authority. But as we know how the story goes, Israel does not do this. Israel fails. They don't represent God well, and instead the opposite happens. Eventually, Israel actually tells God, tells Samuel, who relays it to God, that they want to be like the other nations. See, Israel's supposed to be following God, representing God, and instead they say, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king like the other nations. So the opposite happens. Instead of the nations looking at Israel and saying, we want to be like you, we want your God, Israel looks at the other nations and says, we want to be like you. So Israel fails to perfectly be this missional place. And what I want you to see is the difference of missions for a second. Missions back then, it's, you could call it a centripetal type of missions, meaning it was a, a center place that the rest of the world was supposed to look at, and that was the way that they would come to know the Lord. But as Israel failed to do that, God's mission plan changed. His, his redemptive work came to a fuller fulfillment eventually in Matthew 28, what we see here. And so let's look at the difference for a second. We get to Matthew 28. We see with Jesus uh, this new type of commission. So that was, that was our 10,000 foot view of how God worked missions up to this point. And I want you to understand why it's important to see that. Missional history is a part of God's redemptive plan building up to Jesus. What Adam, and, what Adam and Israel and the other representatives were supposed to be is now fulfilled in what Jesus does for us and what he commands and extends to us. So, so look at this real quick. I want you to compare these two passages. So we read it earlier, Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A couple of things to note there. Authority, you see the dominion, and then also this idea of multiplication. And now read our Matthew 28 passage. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, it's significant to see this, this parallel of authority and multiplication in these passages. One, obviously, it shows us the connection between the two. But it also is really important as we consider what is our actual motivation to go? How do we actually go towards and becoming people that go? So look, all of God's redemptive history, it's coming to a point here. The risen Christ reveals that redemption, reconciliation, restoration, the mandate that was revealed by God is not just like it was before for God's chosen Israel people. But in this moment, in Matthew 28, God's big mystery is revealed that this is for all people of all nations to be reconciled and be restored with God. And this is really important too. He's inviting all of us into it. Just like Israel was set apart, we are set apart as well. As we consider the Great Commission, as we consider looking at this and looking at the backdrop of, backdrop of all of this, there's one really, really comforting thing that we should take away. I hear often, and I think this often too, the reasons I don't go, the reasons I do go on mission, the reasons why I talk to people about Christ is mainly all about me, wanting to glorify myself. Sometimes it's all about the other person, a care for the other person. But both of these reasons fall inadequate. Both of these reasons ultimately are shaky foundations. It's as easy as someone persecuting me or someone saying, you've done a poor job or myself feeling insecure to make those motivations just crumble. But what this tells us, if we look at the whole history of God's idea of missions, is that it's not about us. It's not about us, and it's not even ultimately about the people you're going to. It's about God. The whole point of missions is that God's glory would be manifested on all of the earth. And when we forget that, when we don't see that in the, in the Great Commission that we have here in Matthew 28, then we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to be able to do this well at all. Which transitions us to the second point. What is our actual motivation to go? We know in a grand scheme, yes, I understand that this is about God. We want to manifest God's glory over all of the earth. But how do we, even if we know that, how do we actually get our feet moving? How do we go and do this? How do we make disciples? Look with me in verse 16 and 18 in Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If uh, you've ever been to like a missions conference or you've asked someone about the Great Commission or if you said, quote to me the Great Commission, usually people skip these two verses. Usually they go right to, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, etc. But this is really important in actually understanding why we go. Take a look here. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is saying, 
that the actual motivation for why we go is connected directly to his authority that he has here. So what does it mean? What is this authority that Jesus is talking about? Again, we look back to the Old Testament to understand a little bit more of this. This is Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What Daniel 7 is describing, what the beauty of us now having the New Testament, being post-resurrection, able to see that Daniel even couldn't clearly, as clearly see, is that this is talking about Christ. This is talking about the dominion and the authority that Christ now has, both in heaven and on earth. It's, it's hard for us to even really fathom this as we consider different types of authority, right? It's hard for us to even, to even grasp this type of authority that Daniel describes here or that Hebrews describes. Look at this, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. Heir of all things, radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe with the words of his power. The author of Hebrews is talking about Christ. This is the type of authority that Christ has. Another theologian says it like this. He says, All spiritual, metaphysical, philosophical, and religious power in heaven, but all, also all social, physical, political, economic power on earth are in his hands. He is in charge around here. So what does this mean to us? This idea that Christ's authority transcends even our ideas of what authority could mean. How does this motivate us? Well, simply, Christ's authority motivates us to be obedient. So let me illustrate it like this. Uh, there's a ton of times that I need Cam to be obedient at our household, right? Um, one thing that he's uh, really... Um, bad at is picking up his toys, right? He spills toys all the time, and Katie and I are constantly asking him to pick them up, right? And so I, rightfully so, exercise my authority over Cam to clean up his toys, and he really doesn't have much of a choice. Does he listen to me all the time? Definitely not. But he doesn't have much of a choice. He has to ultimately obey. And that's just a simple, simple illustration of how authority interacts with obedience. But we have a problem sometimes in the negative connotation, I think, in the Western world mainly of authority. And it has this idea, this negative connotation of something that is bad, something that is not good for us. But authority can be really good. It can be something that is really, really sweet. But when? When does authority become something that's good for us? When do we actually look back in our lives and say, wow, that was really good? I think back, of, um, I think back to a time when I uh, really wanted to go on this trip to 
um, Six Flags, I think it was, maybe Bush Gardens. And I wasn't supposed to go because I, um, I had something that I had to go to with my dad. And I lied. I concocted this huge lie. And eventually, I thought I got it all figured out where I told my dad, essentially, I had already signed up. So I had to go because I already gave them the deposit and they needed me to go. And eventually, before the trip actually came, actually came, um, my dad found out. And it was one of the most jarring moments in my life. I'd never really lied like this before to my parents, at least this big. And I remember my dad sitting there and uh, he talked through this with me. You know, he expressed his disappointment and then he rightfully so exercised his authority and I was grounded for like a month from it. And obviously in that time, I hated that that had happened. But looking back, because my dad exercised good authority, I can look back now realizing, man, I have not lied nearly as much, I think, because of that moment. And I can say that authority was good for me. And so, look, this is the reason why God is an authoritative God, because we are wayward sheep. We do not want to do the good things that we have for us. And so God's authority is not bad. Following God in obedience is not bad. He's not restricting us from things that we would have pleasure in. He's actually guiding us to ultimate pleasure. I want you to think of this too. All of us, all of us serve something in this life, right? This idea of authority. It's sown within us that we will give credence, that we will obey the different authorities we have in our lives. But all of these authorities, as we've read in the grand scheme of what Christ's authority is, are just authorities with a lowercase a. These aren't real authorities. These are under authorities, sub-authorities. There's one authority in all of the universe, both here on earth and in heaven. And it's the God-man who literally holds the universe in his hands. So what are the implications? If we know we should obey because Christ has authority, this is the implications for it. <clears throat> because Christ has this great authority in our lives, we no longer have to be confused about what our purpose is. We no longer have to fear that when we go, things will go poorly for us. Because ultimately, like we said earlier, it is not about us. And, so, and I want to highlight these two main reasons that we don't go. And they're both connected with not having um, a clear understanding, a clear belief in Christ's authority. The first reason the first reason that we don't go, that we don't go and make disciples, we don't tell people about Christ, is that we're insecure in ourselves. We're insecure in our doubts. We're insecure in our sin. We're insecure in our weaknesses. You know, as I was like prepping this and praying through it, um, one passage that when I came to know the Lord in 10th grade uh, stood back, came back to me, and it was my favorite passage that year. It's Isaiah 6. This is what it says on the screen behind me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, woe is me, for I, am a, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So pause for a second. What's happening in this passage is Isaiah, God's prophet, is going to see the king, and as he walks in, he's actually, what he's seeing is God's glory manifested before him. And rightfully so, like we see many times in scripture, Isaiah trembles at the reality, the glory before him. And his response is repentance. His response is, woe is me. I have no right to be standing before you. And then I want you to see what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal they had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is amazing. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And this always stood out to me. It's my favorite exclamation point in all of scripture. It's as if Isaiah was afraid someone else was going to take the call. He wanted to make sure the Lord knew he was the one that would go. But look at the contrast. Look at the contrast of Isaiah as he walks into the temple and as now he's receiving the call to go. What is it? What has changed? Isaiah's sins have been atoned for. And for us, guys, this is so absolutely imperative to understand. If you're sitting there and you have a family member that doesn't know Christ, or you have a friend or a coworker or someone that does not know God and you have been placed in their sphere to influence them, you've been placed there to tell them about Christ and you think to yourself, not me, how, I'm still, I still struggle with that sin. I'm still addicted to that sin. I don't have the personality for this. I'm way too weak. My faith is not strong enough. If that's you, yet you confess to be a believer, then you're not understanding what's been atoned for you. Listen, you don't have to clean yourself up to go. It's been done. Christ has done it for you. We should, post-resurrection, because the, the, empty tomb, the tomb is empty, because Christ is off the cross, we should have full confidence to go just like Isaiah does here. See, it's not humility. It's not piousness when we say, I can't go because of my sin. I can't go because of my failures or my weakness. What it really is, what's happening is you actually just don't believe in the power of what's been done for you on the cross. Like how ludicrous would have it been for Isaiah after having his sin atoned for to say, I can't go because it's like, woe is me. Like I'm still a sinner. I still can't go. After it's just been proclaimed to him, your sin has been taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So guys, if you ever catch yourself saying, I can't go because I'm not good enough, then you're not understanding what's been done for you on the cross. It's not a legitimate reason not to go. When you feel broken from your sin and you say, not me, God, I'm not ready, you aren't looking at the risen, the risen Christ. You're looking at a grave. And we can even look into the text and see this, right? Matthew 28, verse 17. That's what he says. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What? I even had to text Joey this week. I said, is this the disciples that are doubting? 
Because if you know the context, right, we read it both in John and then even in Matthew 28, earlier in this very same chapter, the risen Christ walks through a wall to the disciples. He has wounds in his hands and his feet, showing it to them. He's eating bread with them. He's talking to them as the risen Christ, and they worship him. And then he says, okay, come meet me over here. And so then he leaves, and they come, and they meet him, and they receive the Great Commission. And what's happening? As, as Christ is there, they're, they're doubting him? And I'm like, what? But just like every time I preach, just cut to the heart, convicted, because I realized, man, how often have I doubted God? After all the things, the miraculous things God has done in my life, yet I still doubt him consistently. But look at what Christ does. Who in this moment, in this context, receives the Great Commission? All of them. Christ does not separate the doubters from the non-doubters. He does not say, all right, you guys get the Great Commission. You guys are the ones being sent out. All of them are sent out. All the disciples go. And all this is just to, to emphasize to each one of us, guys, we have no right not to go. If you are a confessor of Christ, if you've made him Lord of your life, submitted everything to him, then we have no right not to go. When you feel inadequate to go because of your sin, your doubt, your weaknesses, remember what Christ has done for you on the cross. Remember that your sin is atoned for and that you have no way of cleaning yourself up to then go. But just remember that you have been cleaned up to go. Here's the second reason that we don't go. It's fear, fear of persecution. And persecution in our lives here in Annapolis, Maryland, looks a lot different than persecution elsewhere in the world for Christians. But I don't want to mitigate. There is persecution. There is extreme discomfort with actually doing this, with actually telling people about Christ. Things that can happen is you can get passed over for a job. Maybe your family dislikes you. Maybe relationships would just break down because of it. But in these moments, I want you to look at how the disciples that were sent out in this moment handled this type of persecution. Look at Acts 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. So we'll pause for a second. So what's happening here is Peter and the other disciples, a couple of them, the other apostles, I mean, have gone out and they have, um, they're telling people about Christ. And they've actually been arrested and they were uh, able to get out of prison and they didn't leave the town. They just kept preaching the gospel. And so then we come here to verse 40 and we see what happens next. I want you to see what it says, sorry, in verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter is saying, I, we had no choice but to obey. And look at this next. And when they had called in the, the apostles, they beat them and charged, sorry, this is verse uh, 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. What? Guys, we get, it's the lullaby effect. We get so used to 
portions of scripture like this that we actually don't see what it's saying. They were literally beaten for preaching the name of Jesus. And what did they do as they're limping out, rejoicing? Why? That they got to preach his name. So what does this tell us when we fear how it will affect our relationships? What does this tell us about going and making disciples when we fear how it will affect our time? How it will affect the amount of TV we get to watch or giving up or maybe even being taken advantage of by someone? What this tells us is that the Great Commission was never about our comfort. It pulls back to what we talked about earlier. This, going and, make, going and making disciples, was never about ourselves, our own comfort. Peter, he understood in this moment how great the Lord's name was to be proclaimed. He knew his true purpose on this earth. And therefore, he could rejoice, even though that he was beaten for speaking. And there's something that, uh, that we, I think we've fallen into this church specifically some, myself for sure, and as a culture, a Christian culture here in America. And it's this idea is as if like we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable by the outside world. We should win the culture war. We should have everything aligned with us from the government. This idea that, that as we've gotten so used in the last 300 years to something that actually isn't really spoken about in the Bible. So you might say, I don't want to tell people about Christ because I feel little when I do that. I don't want to tell people about Christ because uh, they don't understand me. I don't want to tell people about Christ because it is uncomfortable. But guys, that's the way that Scripture talks about what will happen to us as we go. Peter himself describes it that we are exiles as we go. And so guys, we're not supposed to feel comfort as we go. We're not supposed to. Now, how does that help us with our persecution? We must lean on the authority of Christ as we go. The, um, in the great divorce, or sorry, I'll get there in a second. Paul himself, he talks about this too. In Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we have this idea that if we go, we will be persecuted. If we go, we will be afflicted. But we also have this prevailing promise that the, the conviction, I mean, the persecution we feel in this world, the discomfort, has not, it cannot even be compared with the future glory that will be revealed to us. And so my question is, do we believe promises like that in Scripture? Do we believe, do you believe, that in all honesty, if I inherit by going more afflictions in this life, that they won't even compare with the future glory that is to come? Because my challenge is, if we believe that, then we wouldn't hesitate to go. But yet we do hesitate to go. C.S. Lewis illustrated it like this. Um, in his book, The Great Divorce, uh, where essentially they're on a meeting plane, the valley of the shadow of life, and spirits from heaven and ghosts from hell meet and are having conversations. Definitely not a theologic, like making a theological statement. But the book wants to illustrate different truths about Christianity. And in this moment, C.S. Lewis is talking to the spirit that came down from heaven, and all of a sudden, a massive parade starts to happen. 
and he's freaked out. And ghosts, I mean, and spirits and animals are all rushing down. And in the middle of it, there's this woman, this glorious woman. And Lewis looks at her and says, wow. And he, and he turns to his mentor and he says, is that, is that, and he goes, no, you've never, you would have never heard of her. And the dialogue goes like this, that essentially Lewis says, well, she must be of great importance. Look at how honored she is. And he says, the mentor says, there is a, there is a big difference of importance. There's a big difference of glory between glory on earth and glory in heaven. And the point of the scene, as they talk through this dialogue, is to understand that that lady is so honored in heaven because she understood where her true glory would be. See, we so often do not go because we are afraid how it will affect our lives here in this life. But we should be fearful of not going for how it will affect our future lives. The more that you love God now, the more that you go now, the more that you seek to make him known on this earth, the greater you will love heaven, the greater you will understand and cherish God and the gospel. If we believe in the authority of Christ, if we believe that Christ truly has held, holds everything in his hands, we do not need to fear what this world can do to us as we go. Which brings us to what he says. He says, because of my authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So now I want to talk for a second about how we actually go, like how we in this context can go. We overcomplicate this idea of making disciples sometimes, but again, we don't have to look much further than just scripture, even what we just read in John as we went through John's gospel. I love looking at what John did, right? John has his disciples, and as he sees Jesus, he literally says, hey guys, follow Jesus. This is the guy you've been waiting for. And so as simply as I can put it, Citizens Church, if we're going to go make disciples, it simply means bringing someone to Jesus, bringing them to him and saying, look at him, hear him, experience him. And we can do that with people that have yet to believe, have yet to profess faith in Christ, and also those that already are professing faith in Christ. And so for the non-believers, like the people in your life that aren't believers yet, that you want to fulfill the Great Commission, you say, I am called to go to them. This is simply how I think one of the first steps we can do. We need to stop filtering God in our conversations. This is something that I realize I do all the time, right? And it's this, if I'm talking to another Christian, and as someone at the church, and they say, how have you been? I'm probably going to answer a lot more true to my heart. Well, you know, to be honest, like I've been struggling with this aspect about God, or, you know, it's been really good. God's been working in this way and this way and this way, which is much more true to the reality of what's been going on in my life. But if I'm talking to someone that does not believe in God, it's much more common for me to answer, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, ah, the eagle's lost, but that was terrible. I don't want to talk about that either. <laughs> and so we do this thing where we filter out God depending on who's, who we're talking to. But the first step in doing this is being a true witness of Christ is just stop filtering him. I, I talk about this with guys at the academy all the time, right? Like if your roommate comes and says, 
how was break? And if you had just talked to me for an hour about how you labored over this text or you tried this or you struggled with God or doubts in this way, just answer the same way to them as you did to me. And you're right. It's going to be really, really weird when your roommate or your friend asks you, how have you been? And you say, well, to be honest, like I'm, I've enjoyed my relationship with God. It's been really cool. And they're going to go, all right. But what's going to happen is you're planting seeds, pebbles within their shoes to say, I have never even heard of a Christian talking about a relationship with God before. What did they mean by that? And that's going to open up more conversations. So that's a simple first peg that we can do as a church is stop filtering God out of our conversations. But even bolder than that is something that I think is really, really useful. And it's just as you work God into conversations, just asking simple questions like, have you ever had an experience with God? Have you ever interacted with God? Did you grow up in the church? Any simple question like that, and no matter how they answer, what I usually like to say is, I would love to talk more about that with you. Can we get coffee sometime? Can we talk about this at lunch tomorrow? Whatever it is, literally making what is called just a gospel appointment. And this is why, this is why I love doing this, is if they don't show up, it's okay. It is okay. If they do show up, there's no weirdness about how do I share the gospel with them? How do I talk with them about God? Like, how do I fill this in? Like, you have literally already told them why you're meeting. And so if they show up at the appointment, you can be sure they want to hear the gospel. They want to hear the good news of Christ. They want to talk with you about God. And I want you to, like, think of this for a moment. If we as a church, like, as a church, if every single one of us committed, I'm going to try to make one gospel appointment per month of the year. Just one, one of these. Imagine how different we would be as a missional church. And, and one thing I want to clarify is, like, we aren't missional by just bringing people to church. That is an aspect of it. It's good. But what we want to do is we actually want to invite these people into our lives. And so the third, the third practical way you engage your non-believer friends and family is to really bring them into your life. I remember Katie had someone, a lady who discipled her some in, in college, and she had come over, uh, I forget where, from a country in the Middle East, and she said for um, almost like the first four years that she lived here, uh, she got invited to church probably a hundred times, and she was a devout Muslim, and so she never went. And she's like, but the f- oh, it was four years before a Christian invited me into their home. And for her, like, that made all the difference. It made all of the difference because the people didn't want to bring her into a place that she felt like an outsider. They wanted to bring her into her home and make her feel like family. So guys, imagine if we could be a church that doesn't filter God, that seeks to talk with people intimately about God and in gospel appointments, and then also a church that doesn't just open our church doors to non-believers, but opens our homes, sacrificing our own comfort to bring them into the fold. But making disciples isn't just non-believers. We don't just make disciples of non-believers. We also make disciples of believers. And again, it's, it's simply taking your friend, taking someone else in the church and saying, hey, let's go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. It's reminding them of the gospel. And it could be a variety of things. But what, like uh, we had a marriage group a couple years ago. A bunch of the guys got together. We were all young husbands. And we would get together and we would just talk about how um, we could be better husbands. We would do that. 
and we would be showered in the gospel. And something that came of that is our wives started a marriage group, and they started to also talk about how we could be better husbands. <laughs> but that's all it needs to be. All we need to do is get together as believers and say, hey, let's not just talk about football. Let's not just talk about the surface things. Let's talk about the real struggles that we're having in our lives and then exhort one another in the gospel. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 28 and he says, teach them. And for us, this is a reminder of his authority. Why do we care about what he's commanded for us to do? He desires what's best for us. And so as we disciple others, we teach them what Christ has taught us, what the word has taught us. So imagine for a moment that if we as a church were being this missional, this proactive in making disciples, teaching them all that God has, has commanded us, we would be a different looking church. We would be a very different looking church. And finally, I love how Christ ends this. In verse 20, <clears throat> he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you, we haven't been going through Matthew, but the book of Matthew starts with this, this proclamation of who Jesus is, that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with you. And it ends the book ends with the same promise. Guys, we are not going out as if God just says, go and figure it out. He's promised to be with us as we go. And so whatever the fears are of holding us back from being that type of church, that type of Christian people, they're not warranted. Christ is with us. Unfortunately, Sometimes we think that we go to exist. That's the purpose of church. That we, we bring people to church to make sure we have our numbers right, to make sure that we have uh, uh, the, the right people here, whatever it be. But the reality is we exist as a body to go. That's the whole purpose we exist as a body to go, glorifying God, manifesting his glory in all of the earth. So we don't go and make disciples so that we can just bring them to church. We go so that we can manifest God's glory across the globe. We exist to go. We do not go to exist. Let's pray. Dear God, um, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your word and for how you have worked and are working in this church. And I pray, God, that we can seek to honor you. I pray, God, that we can seek to just make much of you. I pray, God, that we will not cling to our comforts or even use excuses like our sin and our insecurities from going, Lord, but that we would just trust in the authority in Jesus' name to go. We entrust in the authority that he has, Lord. I pray, God, that you will bring good conviction for us, God, and that you will be glorified in our lives. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.